Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. If anybody wants to contact me, please do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com or of course you can contact me on the contact form on the website www.themaltedmuse.com where there's some more information and some links. Now this week's podcast comes at the same week that the famous Grouse reveals its new blog website But to be honest, it's the goings-on on on another website that has really caught my attention. The Master Blenders blog via the White and Mackay website. Look at the date for the April the 4th. Because there they've announced the news that we've all been waiting for. Shackleton's Whiskey was found in 2009. It was rescued and some three bottles flown by private jet to Scotland this is something that we talked about in previous episodes Richard Patterson headed the analysis and now has revealed that a replica has now been made and will be available to buy described as a perfect match to the original the tasting notes are simply sheer heaven Light honey and straw gold, a soft nose with aromas of crushed apple, pear and fresh pineapple, a whisper of marmalade, cinnamon and a tease of smoke, ginger and muscovado sugar. There are whispers of gentle bonfire smoke giving way to spicy, rich toffee, treacle and pecan nuts. The strength is 47.3% ABV, which was at that strength partly to prevent it from freezing in those cold conditions that they were going through. Now for more information, visit that website, the White and Mackay website, or there is some stuff on YouTube as well. One podcast that I don't normally listen to, but did an interview with Dave Broom about this, which is worth listening to, is the Morning Report podcast for the 5th of April 2011. Now, I just want to make a quick announcement, really, about this podcast, the Morted Muse podcast, and that is listening numbers, subscribers... Um, are becoming more and more. In fact, more than I originally thought I would ever get to and are still month by month going higher and higher. Now, I'm managing at the moment to maintain this within the, the bandwidth that is part of the package that I've I've bought into. But as time's going by, I can see that that is not going to be able to be sustained for much longer. So I'm going to have to do something about that. One of the things I'm thinking of doing is offering the idea for distilleries or whiskey-related groups to be able to sponsor parts of the podcast, as I know at least one other podcast is done. Um, so if anybody has got ideas, anybody's got views about that, or if anybody's got any interest in wanting to sponsor a part of it, so that this podcast can reach more and more people, then that would be great.
just contact me at the email jim at the maltedmuse.com Now last week I did mention a book and said that I was going to review it this week, or at least I was hoping to review it this week. The book is The Malt Whiskey Yearbook 2011, edited by Ingvar Rond, published by Magdig Media. It has got 274 pages, which includes an index, and is illustrated lavishly in full colour. Now, I said I was going to review it, I was going to hope to review it, and that is what I'm going to do. I met Ingvar Rond at Whiskey Live London when I barged my way into a conversation that he was having with the whiskey writer Neil Ridley about water. It was one of those moments when you listen in to somebody else's conversation and you realise that they know what they're talking about and that you could actually learn something from them. And I was right, because they did know what they were talking about and I did learn things from them. And in respect to Ingvar, this book is a sign that he does know what he's talking about. Shukinda Singh of the Whiskey Exchange is quoted on the back cover of this book saying how did we do without it before and you know that is exactly how I feel okay let's start by being critical and objective and let's get all the negatives out of the way first well um Well, I guess. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, the paper's a bit thin, so it can be a bit floppy if you try to read it in bed. And um, and another thing is... Um, no, sorry, I can't think of any negatives. This book is absolutely fantastic. Just remember that it is a yearbook and some of those characteristics do come through. The layout of text, for example, is in two columns and it has a focus on recent trends and, and events, which is actually just what you want. It reminds me very much of the annuals you used to get as a child, but, but infinitely better. It's that crossover from a magazine and a book. It has many featured articles which gives masses of information in detail over a wide range of aspects from mashing to marketing. It is littered with key point interviews with whiskey experts. It looks at whiskey books magazines and websites it reviews the year and it has tables statistics and truly global approaches now it is edited by Ingvar Rond but has many contributing writers of international fame and that includes some of my all-time favorites the last year my breath was taken away by a sample of Bunnahaven, courtesy of Peter Mackay of the Scottish Liqueur Centre. And that was something that I spoke about quite a bit in the podcast, something that kept coming up. This year, my breath has been taken away by this interesting, 
beautiful and absolutely comprehensive publication. If you only buy one whiskey book this year, at the moment I would suggest you buy this one. Wait a minute, I've just thought of a negative. There is a small photo of Ingvar on the back cover and it would be nicer if he was smiling a bit. Is that any good? Does that count as a negative? No? Well, you find something bad about it then. Because to be honest, with this book, I've looked, I can't find anything wrong with it at all. Last week, I talked about Ian Farquhar's email to me, a listener who wanted some help in finding affordable whiskey as he is wanting to explore whisky, but on a student budget. Well, coincidentally, the whisky I am about to talk about this week is often in the low price bracket. In fact, I have seen some recently for around £15, £16. This is the starting point, and the range goes up from there. Because of its low price it possibly could suffer from a diminished reputation which can lead to a whisky not being taken seriously. This is a shame, as it is a whisky with an interesting past and is more of a success than some customers may think. It's easy to walk around the supermarkets, pushing the trolley, go past the imported beers and the mountains of canned lagers, past the rum and the brandy, then the blends and finally to the malts. The eye passes over the prices. Can't afford that one. Well, that one's cheaper than the blends. Must be rubbish. I'll have that mid-ranged one. Not so expensive as to make me feel that I've spent too much. Not so cheap that actually makes me look like a skin flint. And the bottle gets picked and dumped next to the sliced white loaf and the 100% white fish, fish fingers. Now, the more enlightened shopper, those much like yourself, would take a different approach. One of curiosity and awareness. One that is willing to experiment with an open mind. This cheap bottle is not some bland industrial hangover giver this is a unique crafted and unusual product with 171 years of history behind it this is glen grant one of the biggest selling malts in the world and especially in italy despite i think it's something like 50 percent of its production going into blends such as the Chivas Regal. Now it's also a whisky that played a big part in my own relationship with whisky development. Over the years there have been a number of experiences that have been key points in helping me develop an understanding of whisky. To me whisky is not just a drink, it is not just about flavour. Sometimes it has not even been whiskey that has, that has taught me that lesson. I can remember drinking different root beers in Canada, eating different cheeses in France, 
and especially the different vodkas and types of kvass that I've had in Russia. These experiences and many more help me to understand that these experiences are not isolate sensations. The experience of a whiskey is not a sterile laboratory analysis of taste. It is also the mood, the thoughts, the weather, the occasion and many, many more factors that go into that moment of which the whiskey is a part of. There have been different key whiskies that have helped me to understand this. Brookladdy in a youth hostel in Loch Lochie, Lafrague from a hip flask on the hills of the Peak District, Tullibarden at a party and some illicit pachine at a barbecue. Not to mention some Middleton very rare listening to live music in a pub in Ireland. There are many, many more. I was at a point of trying to understand this, before the days of me going to tasting events, before my local whisky shop, the Wee Dram, had even opened. I was trying to work out if I was right. Had anyone else thought this way? Then I had some Glen Grant. I think it may have been the first time I'd ever had it, but I can't be too sure. I had not been keeping notes for that long at all at that point, so I know I couldn't be too sure if it was my first time or not. I poured out a glass of the Glen Grant and started to read the box it came in. It gave details of how the Major liked to drink his whiskey next to water and so had a place near water that he could keep whiskey in readiness for him to, to taste. I can remember that that moment it made sense. It confirmed in my mind whiskey has its moment, it has its place. Today Glen Grant is under the care of master distiller Dennis Malcolm. This is a man who surely understands the whisky. He has been involved with it for half a century, beginning at the tender age of 15 years. Over time, he has worked as a brewer, then manager of Glen Grant. He then took control on behalf of Seagram's for their Speyside area. One of the things Dennis has done is to be instrumental in the change from coal-fired stills to steam. But don't be fooled. He feels this change aids consistency, but he still is a believer in the human touch and avoids over-reliance on computerization. He has come to understand the look, the smell and the feel of whiskey at an intimate level. But despite his long history, he is but a part of the distillery story, which goes back much further and in the process embraces key points in its own life and history in general. Back in 1820, that's 20 years before the distillery license was applied for, we see the last clan rising in the history of Scotland. 
Word had got out that the chief of Clan Grant was being held by the Lowlanders of Elgin. Seven hundred men from Clan Grant followed their leader to Strath's Bay and released the chief. The leader wore a waistcoat made with tartan from Wilson's of Bannockburn just one year earlier, and it has been handed down from generation to generation and is now on display at the distillery. Now that leader was James Grant, and it was this James Grant, a banker and a judge, with his older brother John, who I think was a grain merchant, who applied for the distilling licence, no doubt after a period of, shall we say, unlicensed distilling. It seems often to be the case in whisky history that one generation starts the ball rolling, but it's the next generation that takes it to a much bigger level. And in a way, this is no exception, for in 1872, another James took over the distillery and was to become the distillery figurehead in many ways. This was the major James Grant. The major was a formidable person, the sort of character that one finds in the world of whiskey. Behind many distilleries, one can find entrepreneurs, men or women of great standing, pioneers. Now, for regular listeners, think back over past episodes of this podcast and you'll recognise this. The Dewars, Glenglazuk, Old Portney, Cooleys, St George, Brookladdie, Glenlivet, the list goes on. All of them have great characters in their past and some in their present as well. The major is one of those characters, a man who could socialise, or as we say nowadays, network, a man who could bring about change, a man not afraid to try new things, and this may be why he's reportedly the first man in the Highlands to own a car, and why the distillery was the first to have electric light. It was the major who had a whisky put into a cave near a stream in the distillery gardens, ready for when he wanted it. The reports are that he was also quite a physical figure, sporting what's been described as a walrus moustache. Permanently dressed in tweed, he was a hunter, a fisherman and a keen gardener, known to travel far, including India, Africa, China, America. He would bring back many specimens which were planted into the fabulous woodland garden, which is still a feature of the distillery to this day. Now, as well as this, he also brought back a black boy named Bayawa Makalanga, also known as Bye Bye. Okay, it's February 1898 when the major, now married to Fanny, his children's governess, following the death of his first wife. They left Southampton and travelled to South Africa, visiting his son and also going there on the hunt for big game. Now, on returning back from a hunting trip, him and his companions travelled through an area devastated by famine and came across a cattle herder and his wife, and with them were two starving boys 
from the Kalanga people who had been wandering in the bush, parentless. One of the hunting group decided to take a boy as a servant, and then the major took the other as a page boy. On returning home to Scotland, the major enrolled the boy into a local school where he learned English, and in time became the major's footman. Now, Bye-Bye was also a British citizen, and as such he served in the Northampton Regiment in the First World War. He returned safely and developed a love of football and became goalie for the Rothis Victoria Football Club. He continued to serve the Grant family even after the Major's death, as was stipulated in the Major's will, and he died in Abelor Hospital in 1972. No one knew just exactly how old he was. His entire estate, which came to £36 and 11 shillings, was left to Rothes Football Club. And there is a legend about his ghost, but do you know something? I don't want to go into that. Now returning to the Major, it was also the Major who introduced Glenn Grant's unusual stills. And as well as the unusual stills, he also built the second distillery, known as Glen Grant II, and then later known as Capadonic. It was over the road from Glen Grant I, and the two were joined together by what was known as the Whiskey Pipe, and yes, the locals apparently found a way of diverting some of the contents of that pipe um, into their own vessels. Now the Major died in 1931 and was succeeded by his grandson Douglas Mackersack who continued the success of the distillery. In its time Glen Grant has been joined with Glenlivet, Longmorn Distillery and been owned by Seagram's, Perno Ricard and currently by Campari. Now earlier I mentioned the unusual stills. Now what's unusual about these stills is their shape. They're quite flat at the base and then they've got a cylindrical bulge at the base of the neck which is long and slender with purifiers leading to condensers. Now these are clearly going to make the heavy vapours work for their money. So you're going to have light vapours coming through with lots of copper contact and rapid cooling over even more copper. Now it seemed even back then someone wanted to make a fine light spirit which allowed delicate flavours to emerge. Now I was saying earlier that a thing about Glen Grant is that the entry-level, non-age statemented whiskey is cheap to buy in the supermarket. And that could give the impression to somebody not savvy in the whiskey world that, well, it's a, it's a cheap whiskey, it's a load of rubbish. And actually that's not the case, because although the price of the whiskey in the supermarket is cheap, in the financial sense, 
the whiskey itself is actually far from it. Now just take a look at Glen Grant in most whiskey guides and you'll find it there with positive comments. Michael Jackson described it as one of the great morts by common consent, going on to say that it combines easy drinkability with a dash of distinction. More up-to-date reviews, Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible 2011 finds the more mature Glen Grant hitting the Liquid Gold Awards more than once. And number 47 of Ian Buxton's 101 Whiskies to Try Before You Die is a Gordon and MacPhail. Now, Gordon and MacPhail's independent bottlers... I think Ian Buxton was trying to get distillery-owned bottlings um, for this book that he was writing because they tend to be more accessible. But was so impressed with the Gordon and MacPhail range that he felt he ought to pull out one of their whiskies just to illustrate this point. And which whisky did he choose out of the Gordon and MacPhail range to put in the 101 whiskies to try before you die, he chose the Glen Grant 25-year-old. Now, just those things themselves, I actually think, says something about the Glen Grant whisky. Financially, entry level, cheap to buy. It doesn't mean that it's a cheap whisky. It just means that it's affordable. <laughs> So let's just recap on some of this. How did the Major like to try his whiskey? It seemed to me that he was a keen gardener. He'd go out, find specimens, bring them back, and then relax near the water feature with a nice glass of Glen Grant. Mm. So what are we what are we tasting? Right, well, let me tell you a little, little something. Major James Grant uh -huh. yeah. used to travel the world and bring back specimens from his travels and made this wonderful woodland garden that had this stream running through it. Okay, and there was a, a cave with a safe in it near the bridge by the stream, where he would keep a quantity of whiskey so that he could sit by the water feature with a whiskey whenever he wanted and enjoy the two together. Mm. And the saying goes, if anybody wanted any water in their whiskey, all they had to do is just dip yeah. it into the river. <laughs> right, so that got me thinking. Well, I've not travelled the world looking for specimens, but I have been down to my local generic hardware store yeah. where there's a garden centre and bought myself a couple of azaleas. Right. So I've brought back a couple of specimens. I know that you, John, have got a water feature. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is fully operational Which is as we speak. Yeah. Think. Which, no disrespect to it, is almost the size of a bathtub. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> yeah, it's stopped. It's stopped. <laughs> it's got newts in it. Got six, six well, newts. yeah, but we're sat drinking whiskey, so saying it's got newts in it. <laughs> 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 Is that trees in the way? 
So I thought it'd be a good time to um, try some Glen Grant mm. in similar circumstances in the way to the Major himself. So, Slange. Slange. Slantech. Glen Grant is, a, is an interesting drink, isn't it? In as much as it's not, it's usually not got a, an age statement on the um, on, on the bottle. Well, it depends which one you go for, but yeah, the supermarket. The one yeah. you tend to get yeah, the, the, the supermarket. Yeah, the one in the supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always been a nice drink. It tends to be finished in bourbon barrels. That one, which is what this one is. Mm. And yes, yeah, no age statement. But actually, it's, how do you reckon it would be though when there's not an age statement on it? Well, it has to be at least three, doesn't it? it? Has to be at least three. And I often think if it's not an age statement, then they're most likely going. Do you know what I mean? For the younger. Yeah. The young as they can, sort of age range, but I think with Glen Grant, the average age of the whiskey in there is around about eight years or something mm. like that. Mm. I think, but I suppose they mix it up with uh, with younger ones. So, I always think it's a very nice drink, Glen Grant. It's, it's very, um, it's not a complicated drink, is it? It doesn't seem to have lots and lots about it. No, it's a nice. It's a nice, simple dram. And it's an easy one as well, isn't it? It's, mm. it's light, sweet. Um, it's got quite a floral texture to it. Mm. It's smooth. It doesn't burn you as it goes down. It's very what do you think, mate? Have you tasted it? Yes, it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I like this one. And it's also a big seller as well. Well, I would imagine so because it's it's pitched at a, a sort of demographic that want to spend a lot of money on on the whiskey, but would like to try malt whiskey out. I think. I think it's a sort of a, an entry level malt whiskey, wouldn't you? Something no, to get I you interested. Well, sort of. I mean, I think because of its position in the supermarket, that entry level Glen Grant is very much something that can pull people in and get them interested. But in the European markets, it's, it's big time. It's mm. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it the top seller in, in Italy or something? Like yeah, that? It certainly yeah, has been. Really. Although it still is, I'm not too sure, mm. but it certainly has been. Mm. It's a bit like uh, is it Le Chag? It's a similar kind of price range, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I find that a very nice drink. So I had an email. Was it last week, week before, from somebody asking, you know? I'm on the student's budget. What can you recommend any really cheap whiskies? Because I've been trying some cheap blends, I find them harsh. Yeah. And to be honest, this is a good good one to yeah. Yeah. to sort of dab your toe into, really. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And some of those um, supermarket own label ones, I mean, yeah, not to be sniffed at. There's, uh, there's that uh, really nice bottle we've got of um, Sainsbury's Irish. Uh, single malt called Dunleary. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, that's very very pleasant. That must like be a coolies, won't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Not to be sniffed at. It's a life in And you've also, I don't know if you've still got it, a bottle of Danny Boy. Yes. Irish whiskey. Yes. I found out that they um, that's the blended one. Mm. They do a single malt version as mm. well. Mm. Comes that chap in. last night was talking about an Irish whiskey, wasn't he? Well, he's talking about Dunleary, Dunleary. which we've got. But, uh, he, he said 
he said Glen Farkas, didn't he? Was the uh, the one he uh, that was his drink of choice, uh, his malt of choice. Mm. He seemed quite that, knowledgeable about that? these things. Well, the funny thing about that, I'm not too sure about that. You know, it's it's Arthur C. Clarke, I think it was, wrote a, a science fiction story that I read as a short story um, when I was a kid. I think it was him, anyway, I think it was from the book Tales of the White Heart, and there's a bit in there about this person who was writing music and they think he stumbled across the perfect tune. Yeah. But the problem is, having heard the perfect tune, that was it. It got into his head, he couldn't think of anything else. And the only thing that was left was this bloke just sat there with a smile on his face as the tune perpetually went round his mind and occupied his whole being. And it sort of brought up this question of, is the perfect tune a dangerous thing or a good thing? If you're in that position where you're completely entranced in it, are you in hell or are you in heaven? Now, regardless of what the whiskey is, if this bloke has found what is to him his perfect whiskey, is he in heaven or is he in hell? Is he got to that point where he's he could get complacent with it, over familiar with it? Has he lost that thrill of the chase, that thrill of the exploration of all the different types? Maybe maybe he's just decided to settle. Maybe so. He seemed quite happy, didn't he? <laughs> yes. See, I, when people ask me what's my favourite whiskey, there's so many things that depend on it. You know, what, what mood am I I'm in? What time of day it is, what the occasion is, and there's different whiskies for all those different things. Yeah, sure. He did. He did say to me, didn't he? What What do you What do you like drinking? And I said, Well, I think it'd have to be a Lafroy Quarter Cask. I think is uh, is, mm. is my drink of of choice above anything else. And he said, Oh, I don't like the taste of it. He said, I don't like the antiseptic taste. But it is a you know, it's something you either take to or you don't. Really, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Would you agree that it's got an antiseptic taste, though? Well, it has got sort of overtones on it, yeah, it? I think. But, but that's, for me, it's part of the thing I like about it. I actually like that. Mm. Cold, tarry. Mm. I think you once described it as being like Albus oil. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that yeah, was a bit extreme. <laughs> But if you, if you think, a single malt, is this right? Yeah, yeah but if you look concept, at the, the constituents of the peat that's in it, mm. you've got all those those basic things like creole and phenol and what have Phenols, yeah. Are actually, you know, in there, so it is going to come through. Mm. I mean, I love the smell of coal tar, for example. Absolutely mm. love it. Brings back memories of soap when you were soap a kid. Yeah, coal tar soap mm. or... Freshly ash felted um, <laughs> driveways, or well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Mortar Muse podcast. And as I've said before, if anybody wants to contact me, please do so. The email is jim at com, and I hope you'll be listening again next week. Thank you and goodbye.
Are you time for another one before you go? Well, possibly, John. Yeah.